I want—I told you at some time during the course of this series on Rome. Welcome back, Linda. Backsliding and—I mean, you were visiting Florida, Florida for. Was it okay? That's okay. You're you're well. You're forgiven and you're cleansed. Billy's not, but you're you're totally. No, I don't see any ashes. No ashes. No jack ashes either. This. Um. What's that? Oh yeah. <laughs> He wants to get political. I won't do that. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. Um, Sometime during the course of this message, I said, because I think it's true, that we're going to have more insight through a flashing back at Revelation than we got during the course of teaching the book of Revelation. And I think what we have a great advantage over other theologians even, is that we've come to Paul fresh from a study of Revelation. We've climbed that mountain. And so what I want to do tonight is look a little bit into Paul again, but to use the occasion to look back at the mountain we climbed called Revelation, because there is, I think, we may have captured a correlation between those two apocalypses that is extremely important for our time. So, with that in mind, we're going to do something a little unusual tonight. I've been plowing through Romans lately, and that's quite a challenge. So this will be a this will be kind of an R and R for me. But I think you'll see that it's one of those messages that's designed to impart a vision. So let's take a couple of moments. Father, we recognize the great principle that without a vision, your people are lost and without a compass and without a sense of location and your plan. And so we pray that you'll use tonight's message to map us onto your plan in a way that allows us to be further grasped by an apocalyptic revelation of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Tonight's message simply Rev the book, as we called it, for four and a half years. And Paul, the book of Revelation is billed from the very start as the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves. That term, slaves, is extremely important. It's one of the first words in the book of Romans, incidentally, Paul announces himself as a slave, but it's a specific kind of a slave. It's an imperial slave. It's a willing slave of a king. And that's part of the great royal discourse that is throughout the New Testament that was born in the Old Testament, and especially in the Psalter or the Psalms. So, again, Revelation is the apocalypse or the... uh, the disclosure, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his slaves about what must speedily come about or more pressing. Really, that could be translated as 
about that which was coming to pass at that moment in prophetic history when John received this. And we've come to understand that not so much a late date for Revelation, but one in the late 60s A.D. is far more appropriate. And this has been discovered scholarly-wise lately also. So Revelation is namely a dramatic, it's a disclosure of a dramatic phase of the redemption of God. It's a disclosure of a major phase, a dramatic phase of the redemptive invasion of God into the present evil age. By that invasion, he breaks up the arrangement of things called the cosmos or the aeon, the present as Galatians 1.4 in a very pivotal verse says, the present evil age. So this disclosure of Jesus Christ in Revelation discloses a dramatic phase of the redemptive invasion of God into the present evil age to break up the arrangement of things therein. By that invasion, which comes about in mainly in two divine missions, as we've seen, the mission of the Son and the mission of the Spirit, the suprahuman powers that hold sway and that reign in the present age are shaken and dethroned, deposed, And by that redemptive invasion, ultimately humanity as a whole, as well as the entire universe of proportionate being. God is not part of proportionate being. He is being beyond all proportion. He is the eternal existent one. But the universe that he created is a universe of proportionate being, which by redemptive invasion of God into this evil age is rescued from these powers by the act of God in Christ and in the spirit. Paul's gospel is also an apocalyptic revelation. And so there is a tremendous affinity between Paul's 10 communal epistles. We're not dealing right now with the pastorals for reasons that'll become apparent later on down the road. Paul's epistles, the communal ones, there are 10 of them, is also an apocalyptic revelation, not only about what is about to happen, but what God has done and is doing in Christ. What God wishes to gift you with and to gift me with is a perceptiveness of what he's doing right now in history. This is a lacking perception on the part of, of so many, there's so many of us as preachers that want to say this is what God is doing at the present time, and many of the times we're not really perceiving that. So we need the gift of perception. He gave the gift of the perception of his grace to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, mainly Peter, James, and John, James, Peter, and John, in that order, when Paul went up by a revelation, by an apocalypse that he should go. He actually had an apocalypse or a revelation that he should go to Jerusalem. And he did so 14 years after his conversion. And he did so to show what gospel he was given. He was to tell them of the apocalypse 
the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9 that they perceived the grace that was with Paul. They gave him the right hand of fellowship. They recognized that God was going to invade the present age through a parallel missionary vision. Paul's to the pagans, Peter's to the circumcision, wherever they were found. And so the point is, they were able to perceive the grace of God that was with Paul. The grace of God that was with Paul is his unique apostleship by which he was used to bring about the obedience of faithfulness in all the nations. The project I'm involved in right now is as we've been looking at Pistis Christu or the faithfulness of Christ, we ask the, I've asked the question, does this fidelity of Jesus Christ's definition of faith work all the time in Paul or just some of the time? In other words, can we go to Ephesians 3.12 and find that it's the fidelity of Christ? Can we go to Ephesians, otherwise known as the letter to the Laodiceans in 4.13 and realize that we're all going to come to the unity of the fidelity that is in Christ Jesus. Does it work across the board all throughout Paul? I think the answer is yes. The hard part is to robustly engage the texts to bring this forth and to show it clearly. That's what needs to be done. That's what I perceive that needs to be done at this time in history for our church. But I also see an amazing connection to Revelation. So as a result of the study of Rev the book and of Paul, the apostle to the pagans, which the Jews considered the Gentiles to be, God desires to gift us with the perception of what God is doing presently, as well as what he has done in Christ. Great danger that's happened within our church and within the DVD groups is that people find, they think they find the hook and they stay right there. They don't ride a horse forward, they ride a hobby horse. They stay right there and they've found some place that they're comfortable and they just ride that out and they say, This is enough, I see. And that is a way of copping out on spiritual progress. So we're going to keep moving. Keep moving. Keep moving. As a result of the study of Rev the book and Paul, the apostle to the pagans, we are gifted with a perception of what God is doing presently as well as what he has done in Christ. And that includes the famous phrase, the already and the not yet. There is an already and there is a not yet. And that's important. That's part of the understanding of what he's doing in Christ now. In fact, it seems by this study, God is affording us what I call metaphorically, in comparison to Joshua 3, a clear view of the Ark of the Covenant, as it's called, which is a clear perception of the presence of the living God acting salvifically on behalf of Israel and therefore of all of humanity. Joshua 1, 3, 1 to 17. Interestingly, in Joshua 3, the Jews were commanded as the priests bore the ark on their shoulders and the river Jordan, which was overflowing its banks, split open 
to admit the entirety of Israel into the promised land, the people were told to move and change their position. If you read that chapter throughout, they're called to change their position, to move outside of their present encampment where they had become complacent, to move outside of their position. And that's what's happened happened to me. It's happened to me over the past few years. I've changed my position, not my position on things, but my position of viewpoint, the position from which I view the scriptures has changed. And it is afforded a far more universal picture of God's salvific will of the intention of the father, which yielded to an initiative of God called the salvific initiative. Many gospels we're engaged right now, whether you know this or not in a battle for the Bible, there are positions that have taken control One of them is the justification by faith theory called Lutheran unfairly because Luther had, if you read all of Luther, he had many salvific views and they changed from time to time. Same with Calvin, but there was a justification theory and that has basically dominated control of the Bible, but I think it's done so to an enslavement of the people of God. The Bible belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the individuals that he disclosed himself to in it. And therefore it belongs to the gospel of God about his son, which is a universally salvific gospel. This is the battle for the Bible that's going on right now. So I take it very seriously. This apocalypse, which I'm beginning to see, it's taking shape but I'm not going to be satisfied until we really see a widespread engagement with the Pauline texts. This apocalypse, which Paul's epistles form is something that's catching up with people. It catches up with you. It's not something you're convinced of by a preacher or a teacher. It's something that catches up with you. It's the omnipotent persuasiveness of God, the Holy spirit. His power isn't used violently against people. It's used persuasively for people to come to perceive his grace, his kindness, the essential benevolence of God, which is love, his love, his grace. And so this apocalypse is beginning to catch up with people and you can't push it further and you can't push people further into it. You can't browbeat people into believing your viewpoint. They have to change their position to see what you see. And God will do that for them. God will convince them. That's Philippians 3.15. But when he does grab you with it and you're grasped by it, what happens is beginning in a very inaugural and incomplete measure, our experience in this life We hear about the inauguration of a president, a given president, and then they make much out of the first hundred days. Well, our experience in Christ in this life doesn't even catch the first hundred days. It's very inaugural, and yet it's real. It is substantial. It's some meaningful measure of experience that we have. When this apocalypse catches up with people, They begin in a very inaugural and incomplete measure. 
to experience the liberation and to undergo the transformation which that apocalyptic revelation of Jesus brings with it. It brings liberation. It was for freedom that Christ freed us. It brings transformation. So therefore, be transformed by the renovation of your mind. There is an epistemological crisis that happens, a new way of knowing, a new way of living that comes with it, a new way of participation, faith, when it comes to you and me, Believing or being faithful or trusting God, all those come into that. Our faith is a shared participation with Messiah's faith. It's always a post-Christian experience. It's never the appropriation of salvation. Again, that's another doctrine that's taking shape. That human faith, anthropocentric faith, lays hold of or appropriates salvation is the very thought that has dominated the Bible until this day, on many quarters, not in all quarters. And we're fighting to get the Bible out of that enslaving grip. It's subtle. It's not like the enslavement that is overt of the teacher's gospel. They used to be called Judaizers, but that's an unfair characterization of Judaism. (laughs) The teacher's is a better way of seeing it, as J. Lewis Martin brought out in his fantastic but very strenuous commentary on Galatians. So the apocalypse is catching up with people, and I'm not meaning just the apocalypse of John, but the apocalypse that is the ten communal epistles of Paul. And that results in a very inaugural and incomplete measure of experiencing the liberation and undergoing the transformation which that apocalyptic revelation brings with it. The people who have been gripped by this message are called collectively the church or the body of Jesus Christ. That's very important that we're called the body of Christ because we're joined to him and therefore we participate with him. And of course there are many that are in the church, the body of Christ, who have not been gripped by this also. And... They don't know it yet, but they're about to catch the grip. It's very contagious, incidentally. They have been made alive in Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians, the letter to Laodicea, chapter 2, verse 5, and they have the privilege of the participation in the fidelity of Jesus, the Son of God, and of fellowship with the triune God. They are a kind of first fruits, says James 1, 17 and 18. They are a kind of first fruits. They have been born not by a, their own will, which is intent and initiative. They've been born by the intent and the initiative of God. Salvation is always of the Lord from the beginning to the end. The initiation comes from God. And the completion comes from God. And he who begins this good work in you brings it to completion on a day called the day of Christ Jesus, which is both now and yet to come to its climactic end. Both now, as Jesus said in John 5, the time is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear 
will live. It doesn't say those who hear and believe will live. It says those who hear will live. We've been dead in trespasses and sins in Ephesians. We've heard the voice of the Son of God, as it were. And we have been made alive with Christ. Made alive together with him. That means we have been made alive with a life that Jesus Christ has by resurrection from the dead. When he was raised from the dead, he was raised into an eschatological age. He's already there. In bodily resurrection. We share that life. That incorruptible. That immortal. That everlasting life. That life of the coming age. When we are placed in Christ. Our fidelity becomes a post. Regeneration experience. Of participation with the fidelity of Messiah. Is that the way it should be translated. Throughout all of Paul's epistles. Yeah. Will we have to demonstrate it? Yes. Even Romans 4.16, we've always wondered about that. I used to say, why is that in that order? Why does it say it must be by faith or it must rest on faith so that the promise can be by grace? And I thought, shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't it be that it must be by grace that the promise will be realized through faith until I realized that Faith in Romans 4.16 is referring to Jesus Christ's faithfulness. It must be by Jesus Christ's faithfulness so that the promise by grace can be assured not to Abraham only, but to all his seed. And who is his seed? If Galatians 3.16 doesn't tell us, I don't know where we're going to get it. The seed is singular and the seed is Christ, but the seed is also corporate. It's all who are made alive in Christ and all who are made alive in Christ are all. 1 Corinthians 15.22 becomes a kind of pivot verse. We're always, we're always kind of swinging, pivoting one way or another on that verse. We're always coming back to it. Uh, As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. It happened all at once to happen here and there and here and there until all are made alive. I couldn't talk that way before I moved my position. I couldn't talk about something happening already that has yet to happen. Until I saw this. Take a look at Romans 4.16 sometime. And see the order of it. If you like the Greek, look at the Greek text and see why it's ordered that way. And why only the fidelity or faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not your personal faith. Your personal faith isn't what God's grace rests upon. The promise of God to Abraham's seed is fulfilled by the grace of God that rests upon the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That makes sense all the way through the gospel. I'm just giving you a hint. That's like the tip of the iceberg that we have yet to explore. So this people are a kind of first fruits. You are of what is destined to be a universal salvific harvest. The people who are gripped by this disclosure leave their formal 
their former, let's say, position. Which is translated in Joshua 3 as encampment. The Hebrew writer, oh, Hebrews is phenomenal. You know, Hebrews quotes the same verse, Habakkuk 2.4, that Paul quotes in Romans 1.17 and applies that the righteous one shall live by his faithfulness to Jesus Christ being the righteous one. We've demonstrated that clearly. But do you know the Hebrew writer quotes that same thing in Hebrews 10.38? So there is a Christological reading of Hebrews 10.37 all the way up through 12.3, where we're told after getting a whole list of people who operated in faithfulness, which means that before Christ came, people like Abraham, Samson, Deborah, Sarah, and others we're able to have a participation in the faith of the coming Messiah as is demonstrated throughout Hebrews. So even in Hebrews, the faith by which these people operated, subdued kingdoms, received loved ones back from the dead, was a shared participation in the faithfulness of Messiah. And then when it's all over, we're told to look out, okay, look away from all these lists of people unto Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of that faith, our faithfulness that we share. So sometime along this road, we're going to have to go. If, if I don't do it, maybe some of you can. Hebrews 10.37 through 12.3, Christocentrically interpreted to take the Bible back from people who have turned Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 into a turn or burn message and presented God as a God of retributive justice that has to be demonstrated coercively and violently. That's not God. We've got to get the Bible back from the grip of traditional contractual and I think idolatrous interpretations. That's what we're up against. That's why I take this thing seriously. They are to change their position and follow the ark into the promised land. It's high time now for the people of God to break camp. That is, to no longer be held by the constraints of human tradition and to be enslaved by various forms of religiosity and false piety. It's time to break camp. And to go outside the camp, as the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews thirteen twelve, to go outside the camp and bear the reproach. Our identification with Christ is not only participational, it's martyrological. We suffer with him. We have been given the privilege not only to participate in his faithfulness, but also to participate in his suffering. We go outside the camp to bear the reproach. Paul says when he took the pen away from his amanuensis and he started to write himself in Galatians 6, 10 to 18, he said these people who like to make a fair show in the flesh, these teachers who want to make a fair show in the Adamic ontology, they want to reconfigure the Adamic ontology through circumcision so that they can brag about your circumcision. They do this because they seek to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ. They don't go outside of their encampment to bear the reproach of the one who bore the reproaches 
that were meant for his father. The reproaches that were meant for you, father, have fallen on me, he said. We go outside the camp and bear the reproach of the one who received the reproaches which were meant for his father. In other words, we are to have fidelity to the vision that God is granting us. This liberative, transformative, martyrological participation, it's all those things, will not be complete until the consummation of God's incorporation of all of humanity into the bodily resurrection of his son, which is coming. At the manifestation of that, which is the manifestation of the sons of God, the eschatological manifestation of the Israel of God, Romans 8.23, compared to Galatians 6.16, in glory. So I'm moving into another phase here, but just I want you to know this. The liberative, transformative participation, remember it's inaugural. You cannot judge yourself by a finished product. You can't say, well, I should be acting much more like the resurrected Jesus Christ. Well... I don't think any of you can translate yourself into another city in a second here. So we're not talking about, we're talking about an inaugural experience. We're talking about a kind of a joy that's unspeakable. You can't quite define it. You can't sit down in a social group and where everyone's saying, well, I'm happy because my son got straight A's. I'm happy because I got a promotion. I'm happy because we... We invested in stock and it went through the roof today. I'm happy because of this. You can't really say I'm happy because of the eschatological glory that's coming that I'm participating right now in, in a substantial but only inaugural measure. And you can't even say it simply. You can't, it's, it's, unless you're in fellowship with other people, they'll understand what you're talking about because they've been gripped by the same revelation. But it's inaugural. And so be easy on yourself in that regard. But don't be too easy on yourself. This liberative participation will not be complete until the consummation of God's incorporation of all of humanity, in fact, in all of creation, in his bodily resurrection of his son. At the manifestation of which, all of creation will be liberated from its enslavement to corruption, according to Romans eight twenty-two and 23, and become part of the glorious freedom of the children of God, or enjoy together with the children of God this emancipation. The gospel, in one sense, is very much an emancipation proclamation. It is a proclamation of emancipation from slavery to sin, to death, to the Adamic ontology, and to the human traditional constraints that have chained the Bible and made the gospel imprisoned to human concepts and contractual arrangements and tried to make the Bible a slave to Western culture's view of things. It's got to change. Got to move our position. Revelation. Although this book, which we have studied, Revelation, is with specific focus on God's revelation to Jesus, which he gives to an angel, which the angel gives to John, and John to the messianic communities, 
regarding the upcoming at that moment, it was upcoming then, and perhaps even ongoing at that time, the fall of Jerusalem. We got into the very pretty much unpopular, but I think correct interpretation of Babylon the Great as not being Rome, but being Jerusalem, who looks a lot like Rome because she's married to Rome and has no king but Caesar. So in the book of Revelation, the Messianic communities receive warning, they receive exhortation, they receive in comfort, they receive it through the seven letters to the seven churches, all about what's going to happen regarding the upcoming fall of Jerusalem. That disclosure is enveloped in a larger disclosure, however. That disclosure is enveloped in a larger disclosure and only understood in the light of the larger enclosure. And I'm going to explain it a little more further in a moment. I'm looking back at the mountain we climbed called Revelation, and I'm saying, that's what Revelation is more clearly than I ever saw it when I was in the climbing of it, in the exegesis. So Revelation has a specific focus on God's revelation to Jesus, to the angel, to John, to the messianic communities regarding what is coming about at the present time, which is the destruction of Jerusalem, which is a disclosure that's enveloped in a larger disclosure and which is only understood in the larger disclosure, which is the universal apocalyptic gospel of God, which announces all things being made new in Revelation 21.5 by God in the enthroned Christ, his son. So we've compared Revelation 21.5 to 1 Corinthians 15.25 to 28 to 2 Corinthians 5.17 to Galatians 6.15. So Rev the book is kind of like what Ezekiel saw. In fact, I think it's intentionally like what Ezekiel saw. Ezekiel opens up his prophecy by saying, I saw visions of God. But then in 116, he said, I saw a wheel within a wheel in that revelation of God, a wheel within a wheel. The inner wheel in Revelation is the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 with all of its age-changing consequences. The coming of the Son of Man in Jesus' prophecy of this event in Matthew 24:30 did not have to do with a future event although there is going to be a future appearing of the one like a son of man in which every eye will see him even those who impaled him it's referring to this AD 70 conflagration with its age changing consequences the outer wheel of revelation i think is more important it's the gospel of god about his son the firstborn, as Revelation 1.5 calls him, Revelation 3.14, he calls himself that, and this compares with Romans 1, 2-4, and 8.29. The firstborn from the dead, says Paul, is called the firstborn because he is to be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters, many siblings. You look at that word many, he's already established it in Romans 5 as being equivalent to all of humanity who receive 
the liberation and the deliverance that is life, shared life with Messiah. So we're talking about ultimate things here. In the heart of both Rev the Book and the Pauline Corpus, and I've said this many times before, but it's central, it's essential to our vision. In the heart of both Rev the Book and the Pauline Corpus in toto, all of Paul's epistles, as Peter called it in 2 Peter 3.15, there is ensconced and enthroned Pascal Lamb. Revelation 5, 5, and 6. And we've seen that many times since we bear his repetition. 28 times... In Revelation, we have this reference to the Lamb. The first mention is Revelation 5, 5, in which all expectations of Israel are defied. When they turn to look, when John turns in single representation of all of Israel, he turns to see the prophetic lion of the tribe of Judah. He sees instead a lamb that had been slaughtered, the Christ who had been crucified, and yet who was standing, and therefore in resurrection. We see, therefore, the first divine vision or the first divine mission or invasion into history is through the Son, the Lamb. This 28 references to the Lamb throughout Revelation is also indicated by the seven spirits of God, which is an indication of or a name for the Holy Spirit, the second divine mission. And this is, these seven are mentioned four times. So we have four times seven. Four times seven corresponds to 28 references of the Lamb. So the second divine mission of the Holy Spirit is to bring an apocalyptic vision of the Lamb enthroned at the heart of God's universe. A Pascal Lamb that has been killed and that is raised from the dead. And so at the heart of both Rev the Book and the Pauline Corpus in toto, the whole of Paul's, especially his communal epistles, and really recapped in his pastoral epistles, is an enthroned paschal lamb. We find this from 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul's references to the lamb are much more elusive. He doesn't call him the lamb except probably only here in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Christ, our paschal lamb, has been killed. So let's partake of the feast with unleavened bread. That is, without the Adamic ontology. The feast is what we celebrate. And it was curi- it's always been curious to me. My son Jared is 34. He turns 34 today. I was looking through my mother's family Bible, one of those things that are like, if you hit somebody with it, you would kill them, and you'd be going to jail for it. But I, t- I was looking through it one day, and I saw March 1st, and it was called the Feast of Jared. The feast day of Jared and spelled the name the same way as we spelled Jared's name. So I always say today is the feast of Jared. And I said, you've had 17 years. You have 17 years in the last millennium and you have 17 years in this millennium. You're straddling the millenniums here. So he goes, yeah, yeah, dad. You know, he's just, yeah. But I said that to say that let us celebrate the feast, not the feast of Jared, but the feast of Christ. And Jared is in Christ, so hallelujah. Let us celebrate the feast, which is a way of saying, let us live this life joyously, free from the Adamic ontology from which we've been freed through the slain lamb and the resurrected lamb. We're going to find that the incarnation, the life Jesus lived, his obedience to the extent of death, his passion, his death, 
his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension are all atoning. The whole event is atoning. Whereas the justification by faith model only emphasizes his death and almost marginalizes his resurrection and almost eliminates his incarnation and then makes very little of his life lived in vicarious obedience that it led to his faithfulness to the extent of death by crucifixion. So this is going to open up wide to us and the significance of his resurrection will be known by you by this Easter more than before and by the Easter after that more than before this. In the heart of both Rev the Book and the Pauline Corpus, there is ensconced in an enthroned Paschal Lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He's reigning, he's ruling. According to 1 Corinthians 15, 27, this same Lamb, and you can take 15, 27 right back to 5, 7. He must reign. So he's enthroned. He must rule. And he's enthroned. He's the son to whom the father said, sit at my right hand. Which, that's kind of like, that's an enthronement formula. That's a royal discourse, part of the royal discourse of the Old Testament. It shows Jesus Christ to be king, to be king of kings, to be a divine king, but also to be at the same time God's divine or human representative as king. But it's better, I think it's better understood if we were to talk It would be like me saying to my son, Jared, come and sit by me because we're at a long table. Maybe he's down 15 rows or something. I'll say, come and sit by me. And the father said that to his son, come and sit by me right on the same throne. And I want you to sit here until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet. The last enemy is death. You have the keys. If I could give the keys of Hades and of death to my son, I would. But God already gave him to his son. If I could give you the keys of hell, of of Hades and of death, I would. But they're already in Jesus Christ's hands. And that's better than having you have them in your hands. More liberating. So there is this Paschal Lamb enthroned at the heart of Paul's epistles. Paul's epistles, which are coming into shape in our view, I think, and will come into shape in our view as an apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ in his all-saving significance. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says the same thing. He became sin. John 1.29 says the same thing. This Lamb has taken away the sin of the world. And in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ, not imputing the world's sins to them, reconciling the world to himself. He who knew no sin became sin. And as we've learned and are going to look at again tomorrow night, maybe in Romans 6.7, the one who has died has been freed from sin. And the one who has died is Jesus Christ. In his death, all died in 2 Corinthians 5.14. So Paul came to this conclusion. It shocked him. It made him move his position. Once I knew all people after the flesh, after an Adamic ontology. Now I know no one that way. I even knew Christ that way once. No more. Because if any person is in Christ, there's the new creation. There's a whole new way of thinking about things. A whole new way of knowing 
In a fancy way, it's called epistemology. There's an, a whole new epistemology, a whole new way of knowing, and a whole new way of living. And so when Christ died, all died. But when Christ died, he died to sin and was freed from sin. So if Christ died and when he died, all died, then we have to say that when all died, all died to sin and are freed from sin and all must be made alive in Christ because they died with them. I know it's a lot to take in, but you'll get it. So again, in the heart of revelation, as in the heart of Paul's epistles, which are a revelation is a lamb who took away the sin of the world, the Paschal lamb who has been killed and who has thus liberated the world from sin and death. To preach the gospel is to preach an emancipation proclamation of freedom from slavery to suprahuman powers, sin, death, principalities and powers of the demonic evil type and the Adamic ontology, also called paleo man. I need a paleo diet from the paleo man. So then, I, I like to torture people. The, the new thing is to be paleo diet, which I guess is just meat and vegetables. I like to torture them and say, have you heard about my new product? It's called paleo pastries. It's a phenomenal thing. It tortures them because they think I can't have pastry. Well, anyways, that's just what I do for fun is perverse. Obviously, it's like I do so much of this hard work that I got to do funny, sick things to people. So anyways, here we have it. And if any of you like that, you're sick. The slaughtered, I'm going to make note of everyone who just laughed. You are sick people. Now, the slaughtered and resurrected lamb enthroned is enthroned at the heart of the universe, not a wrathful, vengeful God, small g-o-d, not an idol of retributive justice. The slaughtered and resurrected lamb reigns until all his enemies are placed under his feet. That's an allusion to Psalm 110, of course. That is until death itself, the last enemy, is to be dispatched in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty six. And death isn't finally dispatched. You say, well, why is death going to be the last enemy under his feet, eschatologically speaking? Isn't death already under his feet? Death is already under his feet. It happened in his resurrection. But death has yet to give up its victims. If you go into a cemetery, you'll find that there are bodies underneath those stones. If you go into the vaults, you'll see that there are bodies turned to ashes inside those urns. Death hasn't given up its bodily victims yet. So death, when death is finally dispatched, the last enemy to be destroyed, that's when death has to give up all its victims. And that's why death and Hades rode together. Death and Hades, they're partners. Hades is the sidekick of death. It's not a place of eternal torment. And it was never intended to be that way. And never was portrayed to be that way ever in the biblical scriptures. Only by those who rob the Bible for their own use. And used it into a turn or burn intimidation of people. Sure keep them Kept him, keeps him tithing and keeps him behaving. It keeps him reconfiguring the Adamic ontology ritually 
sacramentally, morally, ethically, but it doesn't do anything for anybody. Anyways, got an axe to grind there, so sorry. So the last enemy to be dispatched or put out of commission is death, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty six, when death has released all his victims. So death and Hades are the two names. The name, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And we've proved, along with the help of Valeria Ramelli, that that means death and Hades. Death and Hades are the one single individual who didn't make it and had to be thrown into the lake of fire. No human beings are thrown into it. Only death, who has a name, and Hades, his sidekick, are thrown into the second death, the lake of fire, eschatologically speaking. So death and Hades alike are thrown into the lake of fire, called the second death, according to Revelation 20, verses 14 to 15. These are the ones whose name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life. God didn't put death in the Lamb's book of life. He put your name in there and mine. He did not put death or Hades in there. Death and Hades didn't have an existence of their own, and they will be non-existent when all is said and done. These are the ones whose name is not found written in the book of life, and this means that not only is death utterly annihilated, but all of his victims are released from his domain. Death has no... Hold on, people. Death has to release all of his victims. Life has to be given to all in Christ. In 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two, The one who died is Christ. Life has to be given to all those in Christ who died with him. And when he died, all died. The lamb himself, the enthroned Lord of lords and king of kings, is our Lord Jesus Christ. In the representative victim, Christ, death died. Jesus Christ is the representative victim whom death and his sidekick, Hades, could not hold. Death could not hold him. Neither could Hades or Sheol or that's simply the realm of the dead as a metaphorical way of speaking. That's why the scripture says God raised him up, ending his ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, says Acts 2.24 in Peter's Pentecostal sermon. And in Psalm 16.10, the Lord himself said, you will not abandon me to Sheol. There's death in Hades. In Christ and because of him, death can ultimately hold no one. No one will be abandoned in Sheol, which is also known as the place of the dead, Thanatos, or Hades. In Christ, all, caps A-L-L, all, will be made alive. Again, Revelation tells us that death and Hades are annihilated in the lake of fire, which is the death of death and the annihilation of Hades, the place of the dead. So, in closing, I would have to say... What a day that will be. It's the day of Yahweh, Yeshua. The day when every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus is Yahweh. That Yahweh, the Lord, Kurios, is Yeshua. The day of Yeshua. 
The day of Yahweh Yeshua. The day of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 1.8. The day of our Lord Jesus. The day of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Or as Paul, what else do you call it, Paul? I called him and said, hey, Paul, what else do you call that day? And he said, look at 2 Corinthians 1.14. The day of our Lord Jesus. It's another way of calling it. Later in Philippians... Just before Romans, possibly in the same year Romans was written. Philippians was probably the second to the last of the communal epistles, Romans being the last. Later in Romans, or in Philippians, just before Romans, Paul abbreviates and calls it merely the day of Jesus. Or the day of Christ Jesus, rather. Philippians 1.6 he who began this good work in you will bring it to its completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Or just the day of Christ in Philippians 1.10 and Philippians 2.16. That day, listen carefully, is this day. Paul made it very clear that in Isaiah 49.8, the day of salvation is now. In 2 Corinthians 6.2. That day is this day, but listen carefully. It's the day of salvation, as it's called now, in Isaiah 49, 8, where God is in the process of a redemptive invasion. But it's brought to its climactic universal conclusion when every eye sees him. Revelation 1, 7. When every tongue acknowledges him, Jesus, as Yahweh. When every knee bows willingly and worshipfully in allegiant genuflection to the King, to the glory of God the Father. In Philippians 2, 10 and 11. To the glory of God the Father means that following the universal genuflection and confession, God comes to be all in all. All of creation in God, God in all of creation, because God is already in Christ, and Christ is already in God. And when all things are in Christ, as God intends them to be summed up in Christ, then Christ, in whom all creation is included, presents himself to the Father with all of creation so that the Father, who has always been in Christ, will be in all the creation that is in Christ, and all the creation will be in God. Jesus said it, he hinted at it a little bit in John fourteen twenty when he talked about a day in which you will be in him and he will be in you, even as he is in his Father and his Father is in him. So you are in the Father. Paul said it the same way in Colossians 3.3. 3, you died and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. Because as many as he called, those he delivered. That's what justification means. That's another Latin miss because of the word justitia. People thought, well, the English should be justification because the Latin is justitia. But dikaio means deliverance, not justification. 
And the dikaiosune to theu doesn't mean the righteousness of God or the justice of God as those who have stolen the Bible from the God of love and co-opted it to a God of retributive justice calls it. It's not the righteousness of God or the justice of God. It is the unconditional deliverance of God, which is the right thing for God the king to do for all of his people. To rescue them unconditionally. I'm still in closing. That day then is this day. Brought to its climactic universal conclusion. We're in that day. But that day hasn't been brought to its conclusion. Paul chastised people who said that. He said in 1 Timothy, there's, there's a couple of guys running around saying that the resurrection has happened already, meaning the bodily resurrection has happened already. Avoid these dudes. They're living in another world that's not the world of God. So this is the day, but there's a climax to this day. When all the full brilliance of the perfect day, as Proverbs 4.18 calls it, shines forth. And when the son of righteousness arises with healing in his wings. Wings is a metaphor for the rays. Healing in his rays. The rays of the son of righteousness reach everywhere and heal. And healing is congenial with the word salvation. Malachi 4.2 or in some manuscripts, 3.20 of Malachi, along with Proverbs 4.18. The day which we are in now is is the path of the just. It's like a day that shines ever brighter until the full noonday splendor. The full noonday splendor is yet to come. It's the day of Christ when everything gets summed up in him and God becomes all in all. Paul's saying the same thing that John said. The outer wheel of the book of revelation is the outer wheel that encompasses all of Paul's epistles. This is coming into shape. I'm not telling you or asking you to believe it yet or to know it yet or to grasp it yet. God will grasp you with it. It is the day when Jesus will be seen perceived by all in his universally saving significance. Blessed are you if you're already having a glimmer of him in his universally saving significance. It seems so far in BCP, our study called Better Call Paul, that Paul's epistles are adding up to an apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ in his universally redemptive significance that is quite similar to John's apocalyptic revelation. And not only John's apocalyptic revelation in John's apocalypse, but also in John's gospel of an all-saving lamb and of a God who makes all things new. Indeed, says the scripture in John 1.16, from his fullness we have all received even grace after grace. Father, thank you that what's taking shape in our minds is a vision without which your own people are perishing. Your own people are losing their compass, losing their way, confused in this world, anxious, 
and desperate. But with this vision, we are those who are the being saved to whom the word of the cross is not foolishness, but both the wisdom and the power of God. We pray, Father, that you will extract millions more in this year between this Easter and next Easter. I pray that millions of more will be released from the chains of a traditional conception of you into a true vision and revelation of your son.